established. And so we want to look at three witnesses or three examples of victory and what brought victory to pass or brought it into being. The first is in Romans chapter 4 talking about Abraham. You may remember that the promise that God made to Abraham was that he'd make of him, uh, uh, he, he would make him a great nation, his family a great nation. He's talking about the children. God's promise had, uh, was concerning the children that uh, uh, Abraham and his descendants would, uh, would bear and, and become. And it says here in um, Romans chapter 4, verse 17, this is talking about the time period when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90. It would seem to them and anybody looking from the natural standpoint that it would be impossible um, for parents that age to have children or people that age to have children. So it, we'll pick up in verse 17. As it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations. That was the promise of God. God did not say that he would just make him the father of nations, but that he already had. As it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations before him whom he believed. Even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Notice that word before. Before him literally means like unto him. It's telling us that Abraham imitated God. And it gives us characteristics that he imitated God. There's a lot more of God than any of us could imitate on our own. So he points out, he's identifying the two characteristics that Abraham imitated God or acted like God. As it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations before him like unto him whom he believed, even God. These two characteristics, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Now I want you to see some, uh, certain things about this passage of scripture. We'll read down through verse 20 and, uh, and see all the things that it says. But these passages tell us what Abraham saw, what Abraham said, and what made him strong in faith. Now, the, the simple truth is, if faith, which belongs to everybody, which is available to everybody, if faith brought impossible victories or brought into physical reality things that seem to be impossible, that's what I'm calling a, a, a victory. If it worked for somebody else, then it can work for you and me too. See, the church traditionally, the American church at least, has taken the position that healings and miracles and so forth have been done away with. Have you ever heard anybody say that faith's been done away with? Well, the answer to that is no. And the reason why the answer is no is because we're saved by grace through faith. If faith is different, if faith is no more, then nobody can be saved, and there is no church. There is no salvation. There is no opportunity for man to spend eternity in the presence of God. Faith is always going to be there. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word, Romans 10, 17 says. So here is telling us what Abraham believed and how he operated because of his belief. So it says he imitated God. He was like unto him, even God, who calleth things that be not as though they were, that means he said things as if they were already done, just like God does. Have you ever noticed how many times God tells us what he has done for us, not what he's going to do? And most people take the things of God or, or want something from God. They're looking out into the future, and they're confessing or praying or hoping or whatever they're doing that God will do something. But the Bible says God already has done something. We wouldn't have somebody come to the front of the church to get saved and tell them that God will save them, would we? 
No, we tell them that God already has made provision for salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus. We would tell them what's already done. Well, what Jesus did by shedding his blood and becoming a sacrifice for us, going to the cross and being raised from the dead, what he did to procure salvation, and by that I mean it in the strict terms like the church talks about. Salvation in the Bible is an all-inclusive term which includes everything that Jesus paid for. But what the modern-day church usually calls salvation, they simply mean forgiveness of sins. Well, the same blood that brought forgiveness of sins, the Bible says, Jesus took stripes upon his back and that with his stripes we were healed. Not we will be healed. With or by his stripes we were healed. So just as Jesus finished the work for somebody to become saved, enter into the family of God, become a child of God, whatever terminology you, you want to use. The same Bible, the same scriptures, the same verses tell us that Jesus, through his blood, again the shedding of his blood, same blood that he shed for sin, he shed for sickness. And that by or with his stripes, we were healed. So that becomes then a faith proposition of looking to and holding fast to and confessing what Jesus has already done, not what some people want God to do. Again, verse 17. As it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations before him or like unto him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things that be not as though they were. Notice those two characteristics. He called things not as though they were. What does that mean? He began to say that he was the father of nations before he ever had children. He began to say something to the effect about his body. He began to speak life to his body. That's what God quickening the dead means. It means making dead things alive. Well, from a natural standpoint, Abraham and Sarah's bodies were dead. They were certainly dead to bearing children. Again, from a natural standpoint. And except for the promise of God, it would have been impossible for them to have children. But the, pro the promise of God brought them to a place where they had opportunity and right, had the right to speak life to their bodies. So where it says that Abraham imitated God, how do you imitate God when it comes to making dead things alive? You operate the same way God operates and speak life to it. And in so doing, he's calling things that be not as though they were. That doesn't say that he denied the facts. It doesn't say that he said things that are as if they weren't. He didn't start confessing that his body wasn't dead. He began saying of himself what God had already said of him. I have made thee the father of many nations. I have made thee the father of many nations. So Abraham began to say, as if, as God said, not according to what it looked like, not according to how he may have felt. He began to speak what God said about him. And in so doing, he's calling things that be not as though they were. This is a place where the devil tries to harass people. They, he tries to, the devil of all things, the master liar, tries to make people feel guilty and accuse them of lying. But if we're doing what God does, it can't be a lie because God can't lie. If God said Abraham was the father of many nations, for Abraham to say anything otherwise, other than I have made thee the father of many nations, that compared to what God said would have been a lie. But he was speaking the truth even though it didn't look like from a natural standpoint, it didn't look like what he was saying was true. He was speaking the truth because he said what God said. Folks, saying God's word, speaking God's word is always the truth because God cannot lie.
Amen? So as it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations before or like unto him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Therefore we see what he said. He began to say that he was the father of nations. He began to speak life to his body. Verse 18, who against hope, now that hope that he's talking about is natural hope, physical circumstance, who against or without hope from natural circumstances believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. You remember in Genesis chapter 15, the Bible tells us that Abraham was instructed by God to look into the sky and count the stars. And Abraham, or number the stars, Abraham said, there's no way, nobody can do that. And God said, so shall your seed be. He understood through a specific promise that God had made. Abraham understood that God's plan for him was to give him descendants that could not be numbered. As abundant as the stars of the sky. So Abraham, without any natural hope, he didn't look at his body and say, yeah, we can pull this off. But rather his body, which wasn't functioning in, the, in a reproductive manner, either Abraham or Sarah's body. They're believing in some different kind of hope. Some hope other than what you get by looking at natural circumstances. In his case, because there weren't any physical circumstances that would confirm it. So he got his hope from God's promise. The promise that God made to him, so shall your seed be, was the thing that he founded his hope in. It was the basis of his hope. And so against natural hope or without natural hope, he believed in the hope that came from the word of God or the promise of God that he might become the father of many nations. Now, I want you to notice what this is saying. You put these two verses, verses 17 and 18 together, and it's saying that Abraham is calling things as they, calling things that be not as though they were. He's calling himself the father of many nations to the end or for the purpose of becoming the father of many nations. Do you see the timing, how the timing is settled? As far as God is concerned, as far as reality, real truth is concerned, Abraham had been made the father of many nations before he ever had children. It wasn't having children that made him the father of many nations. And Abraham came, after 25 years of acquaintance with God, Abraham came to the point he came to the place where he finally understood. You remember how God had to appear to him when he was 99 years old and correct his thinking, correct his believing, correct his confession. He talked to him at age 99. God talked to Abraham about having the children that he promised. And Abraham has given up. He says, oh, Lord, it's been so long. Just bless Ishmael. And God said, well, because he's your son too, I will bless him. But that's not the one I promised you. He had to convince him. God had to convince Abraham to step back over in faith because Abraham had given up on the promise that, was been, that had been made many years before. A few months later, the Lord appears again and talks to him about the child of promise, Isaac, that would be born. Sarah overhears what's being said, and she laughs in disbelief. She's turned loose to the promise that Abraham told her about too. And God has to correct that. And he asked, her, he asked Abraham on her behalf a simple question. He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? See, that's the only reason people give up, folks. 
because they come to the realization or the opinion. It's not real. It's not true. But they come to the opinion that whatever the promise is, whatever has been promised to them, God can't pull it off now. It's too late. It's gone on too long or whatever the case might be. But when he gets Abraham and Sarah both in faith, looking at the right thing, believing in the right thing, establishing their hope in his promise and his word, rather than the physical circumstances, then he could get results. Who against hope, natural hope, believed in hope given by God's word, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, I want you to notice that's a choice. Notice it doesn't say, and because Abraham had been chosen by God, he automatically had strong faith. We just referred to the fact that Abraham and Sarah had both released any faith that they might have originally had in the promise of having children. God had to get them back over into faith to bring to pass what he had promised. So it says, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now let me point something out here. It's not saying that Abraham didn't recognize what the circumstances were. It's not saying that Abraham denied the circumstances. It's telling us that strong faith chooses to believe God no matter what the circumstances are. He chose not to be weak in faith. What would have made him weak in faith? To look at his body and say it's too much. To look at his body and say it's impossible. To look at his body and say, well, I'm sure God meant well, but it's been too long, we're too old. That would have made him weak in faith. Well, if looking at natural circumstances in Abraham's case, or Abraham's situation would have been weakness of faith, what do you think it is for us? It's the same thing. See, when we look at our circumstances, when we look at our bodies, when we look at what the doctor reported, or whatever the case may be, when we look at that and say, that's the way it is because the doctor said so, then we're forfeiting our right to have more. And it's a choice. Abraham didn't deny that his body was old. He didn't deny the condition of his or Sarah's bodies. He just looked beyond the circumstances and said, but God said this. God said, so shall your seed be. Well, if he's not considering or not looking, and that's what this word considered means. It means to look at intently. To focus your attention on it as the most important thing. So if he didn't consider his own body when, to be dead when he's about 100 years old, what did he consider? What did he look at? Notice verse 20. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. I like the American Standard Version on this. I think it is. It says this, being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. But looking unto the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief. But looking at the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief. Now, folks, I'm sure you've had situations just like I have where you start off with something in faith, maybe it's healing, maybe it's finances, whatever it is. You start off in faith. And during the process of believing, right in the middle of your confessions, the devil will come and bring knowledge or try to draw your attention to the circumstances, to everything that contradicts and, and de denies 
what we believe the truth of God's word to be. And it's your choice as much as it is mine. It's our choice what we will consider. It's our choice what we're going to look at. Abraham got results by looking at God's promise no matter what the circumstances were. Well, if God's no respecter of persons and faith is the same no matter who uses it, then that gives us some information and brings knowledge to us that we can be just as strong in faith as Abraham was by looking at the same things he looked at. We can get the same miraculous results that Abraham got, the same impossible results that he got by not considering the circumstances and the individual characteristics of our circumstance, but instead to keep our eyes on the Word. So looking under the promise of God, he didn't look at his body, didn't deny his body, didn't deny the facts in his body, but he realized there was a greater truth that God's Word brought. Looking under the promise of God, he staggered not at through unbelief, but was strong in faith. Now we know that the strength of faith was created or dependent on these two characteristics. The first thing is he was strong in faith because he looked at the promise of God. That's where he chose to put his attention. That's where he chose to put his focus. He looked at the promise of God with everything else going on around him, with everything in the natural realm contradicting what God said he had already done. Abraham chose to look at the promise of God. Now, folks, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how we feel, no matter what the doctor diagnoses, no matter what, we have the opportunity to look at the promise of God more so than we look at the circumstances. To recognize and to realize that the circumstances cannot overrule God's word. It's simply our choice. Abraham made a choice. He made the choice to look at the promise of God no matter what. And that kept him from staggering it un through unbelief. If he staggered not because he looked at the promise of God, what do you think he would have done if he had looked at the circumstances? If he kept his eyes on the circumstances and started checking his body every day to see if things are different. Is anything different today than it was yesterday? If that's where he tried to put his faith, if that's what he was hoping for, then the same word that tells us that it was looking at the promise of God that kept him from staggering, then looking at the circumstances would have caused him to stagger. Are you with me? But looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith. Look at this last phrase. Was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Folks, one of the missing ingredients for so many people that are trying to believe God for healing or whatever else they need is they fail to add in the last great criteria or requirement, and that is glorifying God for the answer before you see the answer. It goes on in the next verse and tells us another characteristic, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. That's what God cleared up when he met with Abraham and then a couple of months later with Sarah. When the angel of the Lord came to talk to Abraham, we just referred to it a minute ago. Abraham asked for a blessing for Ishmael because he's given up on the promise of God to have a child of his own. And God had to get him back over in faith. And then a couple of months later, as we said, 
the angel that comes down, the angel of the Lord that comes down with the two other angels that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah asked a simple question. But it's one that we all have to answer. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What did that bring to Abraham and Sarah? It brought them to the place where they were persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. So we see what Abraham saw, meaning what he looked at. We see what Abraham said. He called things that be not as though they were. And I believe the reason that it says, talked about God quickening the dead, he spoke life to his body. And he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Folks adding praise. Well, somebody said, I don't know who to credit this with. I heard it from Brother Hagin, but I don't know who he got it from. Somebody said that prayer, that praise is the highest type of faith. Because it's evidence, it's action, saying that the victory is already mine. The battle is already won. Now turn with me over to Acts chapter 16. Let's look at another example. Acts chapter 16, we'll start in verse 15. I guess we need to set the stage here real quick. Earlier in the chapter, the Bible tells us that they were forbidden to uh, Paul and his company. He's on his second missionary journey. Paul and his company tried to go in one direction, and the Holy Ghost wouldn't let them go. Then they tried to go in another direction, and the Holy Ghost forbade them to go there too. And so they went to bed, and Paul had a vision in the night of a man from Macedonia. Macedonia, the chief city of Macedonia, the Bible says, is the city of Philippi. The people that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, that's the town. This is the first time he's ever been in that town in Acts chapter 16. He saw in a vision a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. Well, he told it to the rest of his company, his traveling group, the next morning. And it tells us that they uh, immediately made plans to go into Macedonia. Assuredly gathering. King James says, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called them there to preach. So they go to Macedonia. They find women washing clothes at the river bank. He preaches. Several of the women get saved. There's one named Lydda that brings Paul and his company into her house. And from that point, they, try, they begin their ministry in the city of Philippi. So verse 16, and it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us. She's probably a little fortune teller. And her masters are making money off her telling people's fortunes. So as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying or fortune telling. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her master saw that, their hope of the, saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them into the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. 
And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Now, a couple of things I want to talk about this story before we get to the result or the victory that they experienced. I want you to back up with me a little bit. Notice that when they cast the devil out of this little girl who was telling fortunes, I want you to notice what it says about how this took place. Notice it says that for many days she cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which do show unto us the way of salvation. Why did Paul let that go for many days? See, a lot of people think even casting the devil out of, out of folks, which is part of what the Bible says, part of what Jesus said, would be a sign of those that believe in his name. Many people see things like that, see scriptures like that, and think that the power to cast out devils is just inherent in us. Well, if that was the case, why did Paul wait many days? If she's doing something that bugs him, why didn't he do something about it on day one? Did you notice the little phrase there after many days? It said, Paul being grieved, turned around and said to the spirit that was possessing this little girl to come out. Why did Paul wait till he was grieved? This word or phrase, and being grieved, means that's when the anointing and the instruction and the unction of the Holy Ghost came on him to do something about it. See, folks, we don't just automatically have power over the devil concerning other people in their lives. Now, there are situations, there are times when people will come to us and desire for us to help them, either by prayer or agreeing with them or something, that we can have success with casting out the devil. But you and I need to realize something, and that is we do not have healing power or delivering power inherent in us. And by that word inherent, I mean at our disposal to do with what we want to any way we want to do it. I get amused sometimes where people want to tell me about the problem that the devil is creating in some family member's life or somebody that they know at work or whatever the case is. And they want me to agree with them that they'll be delivered. Well, we don't have power to deliver somebody unless the Holy Ghost gives it to us or somebody makes the request. Now, God will honor anybody's operation of faith. So if you or I or anybody else for that matter, any other believer, joins together with somebody according to their will to be set free from some work of the enemy in their lives. That's a go every time. But Paul by himself has no power to cast the devil out unless the Holy Ghost gives it to him. And that's apparently what happened here. We never see that the little girl wanted to be free. So without something or some kind of indication that she wants to be free, Paul has no power to break the devil over her life. None whatsoever. People that want to be dealt with or want to be, people that want to allow the devil to do his work in their lives can have it that way if they want to. The Bible says God gave man authority over all the works of his hands here on the earth. That doesn't mean I've got authority over the devil in your life. That means I can exercise authority over the devil in my life. But if I don't exercise authority over the devil in my life, then whatever the devil does, that just gives him the green light. This is the case, it seems, 
where the Holy Ghost came on Paul after many days to do something about it. And in the power of the Holy Ghost, he did and the evil spirit came out. Now let's fast forward a little bit down to where Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. We just read that the jailer put them in the innermost prison. Verse 25, Acts chapter 16. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. Please notice that. It says, and at midnight, now I believe this was actually literally midnight, but it could be figuratively midnight in your life or in the middle of your situation. The darkest hour, I believe it's referring to. In the darkest hour, Paul and Silas did something. Now, they had opportunity to complain about their backs bleeding or being thrown into prison, especially Silas. Silas could have said to Paul, I thought you had a vision that we were supposed to come here. He could have taken, they both could have, they could have taken the circumstances and the results of them setting the little girl free as evidence that God never intended for them to be there anyway. Because after all, everybody's going to think naturally. Everybody would think anything that God leads you to do is going to have great success. Well, after being beaten and thrown into the innermost prison and feet, hands and feet in stocks and chains, that wouldn't look like victory to most people, would it? But Paul and Silas knew that God didn't send them there to spend time in jail. Paul and Silas knew that the direction that the Holy Ghost had given them, especially the supernatural direction that came through the vision. And I believe the supernatural direction came in the vision to hold them steady in this time. See, the times where you're in the most trouble are the times you need to be most convinced of what God has for you to do. Only time I've ever had a vision or a dream about something is when tough times were ahead and, the, and those dreams or visions kept me steady. Those spectacular occurrences of, of guidance that came from the Lord were needed and necessary to stay steady in the middle of the trouble that accompanied. So Paul and Silas, realizing full well that this is not the end of their ministry in Philippi, prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. They prayed. I wonder what they prayed. I believe they prayed to get out of jail. What did they sing praises about? Well, remember Abraham? He was strong in faith, giving glory to God. They thanked God for setting them free. They were thanking God for sending them to this city, thanking God for the display of his power to deliver this little girl. Everybody knew it happened. Not everybody was happy about it happening. But everybody saw what God did. So what did they do? They had the wisdom and the maturity to realize that this is the devil trying to keep them from fulfilling the complete ministry God had for them in this city. So what do they do? They pray to get out and sing praises to God as if it had already happened. And notice what the result is. And suddenly. Folks, I don't know about you, but I'm believing for some suddenlies. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. Isn't it interesting that God had an earthquake just for one building? 
Now, if it had been a citywide earthquake, if it had been something that affected a whole region, then the response of everybody wouldn't have been the same. The keeper of the prison wouldn't have taken the action that he did if it was a citywide earthquake or an earthquake that affected a region that they were in. Notice verse 27, and the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. What did the jailer see? What did the jailer see? The jailer saw that everybody's prison doors are open and everybody's chains and stocks have fallen off their hands and feet. Folks, that's quite a directed earthquake. Have you ever known any earthquakes that we've had in California to open prison doors? Have you ever known any of the earthquakes in California to cause chains to fall off people's hands or stocks to fall off their feet? It seems to me like that rather than being a natural earthquake, some big angels may have come down and shook the building personally to bring about these results. Now, I want you to get the picture. Paul and Silas are in jail. They've been beaten. They're hurting. Their backs are bleeding. They've been thrown into the inner prison. So all the other prisoners that are there, whoever is there, all the other prisoners would know these are really bad guys. They want to make sure that under all circumstances, they stay put. And then they hear these two guys praying. Now, I don't know the words to their prayer, but you know as well as I do, they've got to be praying to get out to fulfill God's plan and purpose for them coming to the town to begin with, that purpose being people getting saved and finding out about God. They hear them sing praises as if things are all right, as if things are good, as if their backs aren't bleeding, as if they are not in pain. And suddenly an earthquake takes place and it opens everybody's prison doors It takes off the chains and the fetters from everybody's hands and feet. And nobody moves. There's not a mass exodus or a rush for the doors by the other prisoners. The way these things happened have to tell us. There's no other possibility. It has to tell us about how these guys perceive Paul and Silas. They pray for deliverance. Suddenly they're delivered. They sang praises as if it things had already happened to their benefit, and instantly everything happens. Why is everybody, why are the other prisoners staying foot? They're waiting to see what these guys are going to do next. They hear them pray to God. They hear them praise God. They see the results of the earthquake, very directed results, not to bring destruction upon anybody, but to set people free. And nobody moves a peg because they want to know what these guys are going to do next. Paul identifies the keeper of the prison. They're still there. Everybody's still there. The prisoner, the jailer, verse 29, called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a question that is from an unsaved jailer. How would he be talking about salvation? What would make him think anything about salvation except that he heard Paul's prayer and their praise. Now, don't get me wrong. He fell asleep somewhere along the way. But he has to know something about the reason that Paul and Silas are in jail to begin with. 
Otherwise, why would he ask about salvation? I can see that if, if these guys had been worshiping some kind of false god and had some kind of results, maybe not even these greater results, but some kind of, of action taken, I can see the jailer saying something like, please don't let your God get mad at me. But his question is, what do I do to get saved? I believe that tells us more about what Paul prayed, Paul and Silas prayed and sang about than anything else. So they said, verse 31, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the same night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. Notice it doesn't just say that Paul and Silas prayed. I think a lot of people get, get information about the prayer of faith, and that's great. The Bible tells us about the prayer of faith because God wants us to use faith. He wants us to use our faith like a servant and have it bring supernatural and even miraculous results into our lives. But so many people just stop with praying. They prayed and sang praises to God. Just as the Bible tells us in Romans 4, one of the characteristics of Abraham being strong in faith was that he glorified God for the answer before he saw the answer. Here, these guys are doing the same thing. There seems to be a pattern developing. Finally, turn with me over to 2 Chronicles, Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I love this story. Beginning in verse 1, it says, It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah and these enemy armies are surrounding them or coming against them. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side of Syria. And behold, they be in whatever the name of that place is, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask the help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, get this, this is his prayer. Take notice of this prayer. This prayer works. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And rulest thou, rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? That's talking to God pretty plain, isn't it? Notice it's not a prayer of, oh, look at us and the trouble we're in. It's challenging God to be who he said that he is. Art not thou God, who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gave it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? Doesn't this land belong to us? And they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil comes upon us as the sword, or judgment, or pestilence, or famine, 
If we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. Didn't you say all this, God? Didn't you promise that if we would call upon you in this place, that you would save us and deliver us? Isn't that what your word said? Isn't that the promise you made? Again, this prayer is pretty direct. Let me suggest something to you. This is something that I would qualify as argumentative prayer. It's the people of Israel, God's people, pleading their case before the Lord based on what God said and based on what God had done for Israel. Argumentative prayer is one of the best kinds of prayer there is because they're bringing God's word back to him in their prayer. They're recounting and reminding God of the premise for which this temple was built and the deliverance that he's promised to give them. And now, verse 10, and now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Only reason these people are still here is because you wouldn't let Joshua and the rest of the group destroy them along with the other people. Kind of like blaming God for the situation that now exists. Behold, I say, verse 11, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession. Notice they say it belongs to God. God had entrusted it to them, but it belonged to God. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? Are you not going to do something about this, God? They already know that they can't, don't have the ability to do it themselves. They're facing five enemy armies. They're outnumbered five to one, perhaps. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are on you. They're saying we don't have any physical strength or military might that we can trust in here, God. We're helpless and we're hopeless unless you do something. And we've got our eyes on you to see what's going to happen. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. And thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed, by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Most people want to stop right there. Most people want to rejoice in the fact that God said he would fight our battles for us. This is not our battle. This is his. But that's not where it stops. That's not the place where victory is brought. That's not the place where victory occurs. They've got the word of the Lord. They've got a promise from God that he'll fight the battle and they won't have to. But that's not when the victory came. It's when the word came. It's when knowledge of what God would do was declared 
But it's not the end of the story. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Now, I've got a question for you, folks, and this is, this is the way that most of us have. Hopefully, we don't still thought or think or thought. But naturally, the question arises. Well, if God's going to do the fighting, why don't we have to go out? Why don't we just set a big feast in motion and let God destroy all these people without us even facing them? That's what a lot of people, if not the majority of people, want God to do for them. They want God to fight the battles so that we can stay home and watch TV. But God even tells them where they are. He says, go out against them tomorrow by the cliff of Tekoa, or the place of Tekoa. They're by the cliff of Ziz. God wants to make sure that they know exactly where to find them. Because he wants them to see how he fights for his people. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. What are they worshiping the Lord about? They're worshiping because of his promise. It hasn't been realized yet. But they're worshiping because of the promise that was made to them. And the Levites and the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. I want you to notice they're praising God for the answer. They're praising God for what he said to them. They're thanking God for the deliverance that they don't yet have. Verse 20, And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and your inhabitants of Israel, you inhabitants of Israel. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe in his prophets, so shall you prosper. Now here's something I, I want you to consider. You know, sometimes when we're in church or we're in um, events with other Christian people, a lot of Christian people, whatever the case might be, we can all get so excited about the teaching of the word. We can get so excited about the promises of God. But then Monday morning rolls around. And how many times have we gotten out of bed on Monday morning, getting ready to go to work or whatever we've got going for the day? And we remember the day before and we think, wasn't that great? Man, if only I could have that same feeling now. They didn't feel the same way the next day. So Jehoshaphat has to remind them. Jehoshaphat has to encourage them and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Remember what the prophet said. Believe in what the prophet said. We've still got something to look forward to. Believe the promise of God that was declared unto us. Verse 21. And when he had consulted with the people, talking about addressing them to remember the promise that was made. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before or in front of the army. And to say, praise the Lord for, the mercy, for his mercy endures forever. 
Now, folks, I want you to get this picture. Everybody has spent the day before on an emotional roller coaster. They started the day out knowing that they were being surrounded or being attacked by five enemy armies. No way their military power could save them or defeat the enemy. It's too great. Solomon proclaims a fast, brings everybody together, prays this wonderful prayer, challenging God to be the God that he said that he would be to his people. It brings results. The Spirit of the Lord comes on the prophet and he prophesies that God will fight the battle. They won't have to. Next morning, the morning after, Jehoshaphat starts encouraging the people to believe in the promise of God that was spoken the day before. And then he says to the people, we're going to put singers out in front of the army. Now that we won't need the army because God said we won't have to fight in the battle. So we won't need the army. So what we'll do is we'll put singers out in front of the army. Now from where I sit, I think, wow, what genius. But what if you were one of the singers that was picked? The whole problem is five enemy armies. So we'll put the glee club out front. I'm not sure everybody was excited about it as you and I might be from here. But he appointed singers that they should praise the Lord. Singing tells us even what they sang. Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Verse 22. And when they began, say when. And when they began to sing and to praise the Lord. I'm sorry, I, I read that wrong. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah. And they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir. They're supposed to be in an alliance, but now they're fighting among each other. Utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy one another. Notice when the victory came. The victory didn't come when God made the promise. It didn't come when God told them what tomorrow was going to be like. You won't need to fight in the battle. The battle is the Lord's, not yours. That's not when the victory came. The victory came when they began to praise God for his promise. And when they began to sing and to praise. You know, it's pretty obvious to me that they believed in what the prophet had said the day before. Otherwise, why show up? If they hadn't believed in the prophet or the promise of God through the prophet to some degree, the next morning would have been a barren ground. Jehoshaphat would have been there with the, the guy that prophesied and that would have been it. But the fact that, the, that all of Judah has gathered together the next morning to go out against their enemies, that's a clear indication that they believed. But it wasn't just when they believed that the victory was won. The Bible says the Lord set ambushments when they began to sing and to praise. Praise is the highest type of faith. Praise is one of the greatest weapons you have. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments. So that when the children of Israel get to where they're encamped, their enemy is encamped, when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness... They looked into the multitude or unto the multitude and behold, 
there were dead bodies fallen to the earth and nobody escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels which they stripped off of themselves, more than they could carry away, and they were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. Now, folks, that's a God kind of victory right there. Notice in all three examples, Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And when Paul and Silas, and Silas at midnight began to pray and sing praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them, and suddenly there was a mighty earthquake. And here, Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah, when they began to sing into praise, the Lord set ambushments and provided them a spoil that took three days to haul off. Folks, it seems that praise has a lot to do with our victory. A lot to do. Now, people are in faith. In all three examples, the people involved are believing God. But in all three examples, the answer only came when they were singing and praising unto God. I'm firmly convinced with the experience that I have, the length of time I have in working with people, I am firmly convinced that if most people would stop praying and start praising, the answers that they seek would be theirs soon, if not immediately. Because we're good, when we're in trouble, we're good about praying. We're good about getting everybody we know to pray. We're good about sending prayer requests to anybody and everybody that will listen or accept them. We're not so good at praising God for the answer. Let me tell you one final story and then I'll quit. There was a medical doctor many years ago by the name of Lillian Yeomans. Her father had been a famous doctor, wound up being very wealthy in the city of Chicago. And Dr. Yeomans and her sister were the only two children that this famous doctor had. And they were doctors as well. Well, some way or another, Dr. Yeomans, because of the stress of her job or the time, the hours that she was putting in, whatever the case is, she became addicted to morphine. And it destroyed her life. It destroyed her medical practice. It was taking, running through all the money that she had, the inheritance that she had from her father who had since passed away. And she was in a place where she knew that medical science could do nothing for her. So she turned to God. She made it her life's work to find out what God could and would do, what he said that he would do in his word to deliver her. And she came to the knowledge of healing. She came to understand that Jesus paid the price for sins and sicknesses at the same time with the same blood. And so through the process of time, it wasn't an instant healing, but through the process of time, just standing on the word, confessing the word and so forth, she was delivered. In those days, the early 1900s, in those days, nobody could kick drug use, and the, the major drug was morphine. Nobody came back from it like she did. So it turned out to be a tremendous testimony throughout the whole city, and to, particularly through the medical community. Well, she came to the place, to the decision with her sister, that they would take the house that their father had left them, giant house, Many, many bedrooms, 12 bedrooms or something like that in the house. 
that they would turn that into a clinic. Now, you couldn't get away with doing something like that nowadays because of all the regulations and government intrusion and everything else. But they turned it into a, a, a divine healing clinic. And they wound up having a waiting list of all kinds of folks. Many, 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 many people were waiting to get in there. And as a result, because of the demand that was placed on uh, them, because their, their home was, it was big, very big for the day, but it's still limited, they wound up taking only the incurable cases, only the worst cases. And Dr. Yeomans told about a story where there was a terminal patient that was in one of the bedrooms. I think this was like three floors high or something like that. So they're spread out over this whole place. And it's just her and her sister, and they've employed some help to take people food and so forth. But their program was very simply this. In the morning and in the evening, when they'd deliver the food to each of the patients, they would read Galatians chapter 3 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. Galatians chapter 3, they'd read the whole chapter, but particularly verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. Verse 14 goes on to say, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. They read Deuteronomy 28 because it talks about the blessings and the curses of the broken law of Moses. Well, all about the curses. A, a major part of the curses in Deuteronomy 28 is talking about sickness and disease. And so they, they, they got multitudes of people healed one at a time. Because people over a period of time, hearing those two chapters, hearing the truth of the word, it would dawn on them. The healing power of God and God's will for them to be free would dawn on them. And people would just be healed on their own in many cases. Sometimes to the laying on of hands or ministry to the sick in some way or another. But many times, maybe most of the time, people would just be healed on their own. And so there was this one lady that had a terminal condition. I don't know what the sickness was. But she had some terminal condition and the doctors had given her up to die. And she had just gotten into this home. Her time or her number came up or whatever the case was and she was uh, accepted into the, the home. And during the course of time, she'd only been there a few days, as I understand, and she had a vision. And in this vision, there was like the balance of scales. You've seen the, the statues with the Lady Justice or whatever it is with her eyes closed and got the, the what do you call that, that weight thing? What's it called? A scale. a scale? Okay, we'll go with scale. In this uh, vision, she saw a scale, a great big scale with great big baskets on both ends. On one end, and it was all, all the way weighted down, it was labeled prayer. And the other one that didn't have much of anything in it was labeled praise. And the Lord spoke to her and said, when your praise balances out your prayer, that's when your answer comes. So she got busy. She got busy praising God. She started singing songs. Dr. Yeomans, well, really it was uh, uh, her sister, Dr. Yeoman's sister that was the singer. And she wrote a lot of songs, spiritual songs, about healing and being healed and being delivered and being free and so forth. And um, they would teach these songs to the people. And so this lady, not having been there very long in the home, picked up on one or two of them and just started singing. And she was singing round the clock. As well, you might understand, if your life depended on it, we'd be busy doing something about it, would we? 
So she's singing around the clock. And the rooms are, uh, even though it's a big house, the rooms are still fairly close in proximity. And so it would start getting on other people. Other people wound up started singing some of the songs as well. And this went on for a matter of a few days. And after a few days, she's in her room, still bed fast, can't move, can't get out of bed because it's such a critical condition, critical uh, illness or sickness, disease. And so she said that she had another vision. She shared all these things with Dr. Yeomans after the fact. She said she had another vision. Now this time she sees the scales and it's evenly balanced. And instantly, from at that moment, instantly she was healed. She jumped out of bed. Dr. Yeoman said later, we're not used to hearing footsteps above us because everybody's bed fast. But she heard footsteps. They heard footsteps running up and down the hallway. And she was delivered. And her healing brought healing to a lot of other people too because it became such an encouragement to them that Dr. Yeoman says, never again after that point was our house filled with anything other than praising God for the answer. In the vision, she balanced out her prayer with praise. And her healing was manifest in her body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you for the privilege that we have, and it is a dear privilege to act on your word. Father, we're going to be like Abraham. We're going to choose to be strong in faith. We're not going to look at the circumstances surrounding us, but instead we're going to call things as they are in the word. So we say that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We say that we're healed from the top of our heads to the, sick, to the soles of our feet. We say, Father, that the healing power of God is driving out every sickness and every disease. We speak to our bodies and we command the bo our bodies to line up with the Word of God. We thank you, Father, for restoring us to health and healing our wounds. We thank you, Father. We glorify you because nothing is too hard for you, Lord. It doesn't matter if we might have something the doctors call incurable. Nothing is incurable with you. And we thank you that Jesus paid the price already. We don't have to wait for something to be done. We believe, according to your word, that things have already been done. And Jesus took upon himself stripes to pay the punishment, to ransom us from not just sin, but sickness and disease as well. So we call our bodies well in Jesus' name. We call our minds alert. We call ourselves restored. We call ourselves healed. Because you call us healed, Father. And you cannot lie. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your faithfulness to pay our price. To pay our debt. And we declare that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead... Because he dwells in us, he quickens our mortal body. We say, therefore, Father, that every cell of our body and every fiber of our being is saturated with the life of God. We say, Father, that you are raising us up. And we thank you so much for it, Lord. It's so good to be healed. It's so good to know that healing is ours. It's so good to know that divine health restores every trace or 
runs off, removes every trace of every symptom of every sickness and disease. That's what Jesus paid for. And we claim it as our own in Jesus' name. Amen.